0: That the Romeros read for us this morning, I don't know if those would necessarily strike all of us as traditional Christmas passages. Uh, Many of you are familiar with John 3.16, although when you tack on verse 17, it sort of adds a whole lot of flavor to it. But we don't usually look at that verse as one of the verses that go on Christmas cards and all of that kind of stuff. And then we skipped ahead to 1 John chapter 4, and we talked about what it says there about love. And so those passages that we read this morning, though they may not be what you think of as traditional Christmas passages... Let me just ask you this, what greater gift is there than the gift of God's love? When we think about the gift of Christmas, we have to think about God's love. And God's love was made evident. God's love was made clear to us when he sent his only begotten son to earth to pay the price for our sin, so that he could buy our pardon and restore our life-giving relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't know where uh, you're at in this whole journey of uh, discovering the Lord and all that kind of stuff, and maybe that seems like shocking news to you. Maybe when I say that he sent his son so that he could die, so that he could restore our relationship with God and give us life, you might go, "Wow, that is the strangest thing I've ever heard." Or a whole bunch of us might go, "Yeah." Yeah, i been to church a million times, read my Bible cover to cover, heard this story before, yawn, yawn, yawn. If you find yourself tempted to yawn at the statement that God sent his son to buy our pardon so that we could have eternal life in him, I want to encourage you to slap yourself in the face and wake up. Because while you may have heard this again and again and again, this is the best news you will ever hear. Our God is an awesome God and what he has done for us and what we remember at Christmas is so, so important. But before we dive into these passages that we're going to look at today, I think it's probably important for us to go ahead and define some terms because uh, words mean something and we're going to run across some words in these passages that need to be defined and definitions are very, very important because even uh, words that are generally accepted vary from culture to culture, even from generation to generation. Um, and I I, I should have probably checked with some of our Filipino members before I start talking about the Tagalog language, which I do not speak. But uh, what I read was this, that in the Philippines, there are at least seven different common words for rice. And, and I talked to a Filipino friend who told me, oh yeah, if, if rice is not served with food in the Philippines, that is not considered a meal, it's a snack. Rice is so central to everything, they, it's, it's central to their uh, diet, it's central to their economy, they grow rice, they market rice, they eat rice with every meal. In the Philippines, rice is central to their society, central to their culture, and so they have specific words. There's a word for uncooked rice, and it's a different word than the word for cooked rice. There is a word for rice that is used for seeding the fields, and it's different than those other two words. There's even a word for rice in Tagalog that means the rice that is burned on and stuck to the bottom of the pan has its own word, which would be helpful the way I cook. I would need that word. But I... In in certain cultures, certain words have lots and lots of options. Uh, The Inuit people, who you might think of as the Eskimo people, right? You've probably heard they have somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 words in their language for snow. Snow's pretty important, wouldn't you say? It's pretty central to their culture. And so they have 50 words for snow. You know what we have multiple words for in our culture? What's so central to our culture that we think is so important we have to have tons and tons of words for? I literally read an article on this. Here's what it said. It said that in the United States, there are at least 400 different words and euphemisms for sex. Did he just say sex in church? Yeah, I think he did. I don't know if we should come to this church. Well, sorry. I won't give you the list of the 400 different things that, that are used to describe this. Some of you, get your mind back up here. Get your mind. I don't need you going down this list. That's not the point. I read that there's 400 words for that, and yet, really, we only have one word for love. We, we, you know, we have different nuances that we like something or we're fond of something or we could be infatuated or whatever, but all of those are different. Well, we use the word love. Love, I think, in our society is what I would call a junk drawer word. Do you have a junk drawer at home? Anybody have a junk drawer in your kitchen? Yeah, I hope you do. I don't know how you function without a junk drawer. You gotta have a junk drawer. In your junk drawer, there's what? Like uh, old birthday candles and uh, zip ties and rubber bands and maybe some dull scissors from when you were in kindergarten and Taco Bell packets of uh, sauce. You know, that kind of stuff. If there's not a place, we don't know exactly where it goes. It goes in the junk drawer under the heading junk and we know that there's a drawer full of stuff that we don't really know what, where it goes or what it fits with. That's a junk drawer. Well, uh, I think love has become a junk drawer word for us. I really, really love my wife. I really love my wife. Oh, and I love tacos. I love tacos and uh, let's see, um, I love the UCLA Bruins. Oh, and I love Jesus. And I love my kids. And I love pizza. You see what I'm saying? Those those don't mean the same thing. We have, we throw this word around, you know, people make love, they fall in love, they fall out of love. Love is like oxygen. Uh, love is a many-splendored thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Obviously... That word has a ton of different connotations, right? But what does it really mean when the scripture talks about the love of God being made manifest to us at Christmas time, what does it mean? If love is at the heart of the meaning of Christmas, We probably need to figure that out. So take your Bibles, if you will, and I want you to turn all the way to the back of your New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you went just a little too far, but just to the left of Revelation, you're going to find John's letters. Now, don't get confused. There's the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. It's a very big letter, or a very big uh, gospel account, but then at the end of the New Testament, you have 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Those are letters written to John later in his life to the church. And I want you to go to 1 John and join me, if you will, in chapter 4. And we're going to uh, revisit the verses that we already heard read this morning. So let me begin. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Okay. So let's just stop there for now. Uh, Here's what we've got so far. God commands us to love one another. Beloved, let us love one another, right? There alone, we could just preach our entire sermon. In fact, let's do a 12-week series on how to love one another because we're terrible at it and we all need to learn how to do that better. But scripture tells us over and over and over again to love one another. But if we're going to do that, we have to understand that love and we have to Know where that love comes from and what the source is. So it commands us to love one another, and it says that love is from God. Okay, so whatever, whatever the Bible means by love, this junk drawer word, let's lift it out of the junk drawer and let's give it its own place and let's figure out what God is telling us when he's telling us about this love and here's what we know so far. We're supposed to love one another and the love with which we are to love one another comes from God. That is to say he's the source of all true love. So the only way to truly experience love it's through a personal relationship with God, which is made possible through Jesus Christ. Are you starting to see the tie into to Christmas? See, see, people can talk about love. People can claim to be very loving. They may even believe that they're loving. But anyone who does not know God, according to this passage, does not love So this is interesting, right, because we have a world that uses this word love, and everybody would say, oh, I love this, I love that, I love him, I love her. But the scripture says that in this biblical definition of love, the only way to even be capable of loving is to first know God. Why is that? It's because God is love. He's the source of all love. You can't just muster up love. You can't just create love, at least not the kind of love that we're talking about here. And that's why when we talk about falling in love and then falling out of love, we're talking about something, but it's something different than this. Because God is the source of true love. And the only way to experience that love is through a relationship with him. And it's only by sending Jesus... That the love of God has been made manifest to us, it says. Look again at verse nine. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. His love is manifested to us. His love is manifested in us. Now that word manifested is probably not a word that you use in your everyday vocabulary. It's kind of a churchy word. What does it mean? That is love is manifested to us. The word manifest means revealed. So, you know, if you're playing gin rummy and you're looking at your hand and you know what all your cards are, but your opponent doesn't, and then you make gin and you lay your hand down, you just manifested your cards. So when the scripture says that He manifests his love to us in the sending of his son, Jesus. What that means is Christmas is absolutely essential to love. If there was no Christmas, there would be no love that humans could experience in any kind of a way. And it's only through that incredible act of love on the part of God that we can ever experience the life that Jesus came to give us. So let me say it this way. With all due respect, if you don't know Jesus, you are existing, but you're not living. Look again at what it says in verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him so that we might live life the way God defines it, life the way God intended it, is only available in the person of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to agree with me, you don't have to even accept what I'm saying. I'm gonna let the scripture speak for itself and we're gonna see more about this. But for now, let me just throw this out there. If you don't know Jesus personally, though you may be existing, you are not really living not in the way that God talks about it. I mean, what did, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's John chapter 10, verse 10. This is why we celebrate Christmas guys. This is why there is a manger scene on your mantle. This is why we sing, O Holy Night. This is why we can talk uh, intelligently about joy to the world. Jesus came to earth to give us life. So somehow this love and this life are tied together, and that's true in all of John's writings. If you go back, this is homework for you. When you go home this week, we won't look it up today, but when you go home this week in your quiet time, go back and reread John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and see what it's says about Jesus, the light of the world, the giver of life that comes into darkness, creates light, and that light, it says, was the, uh, that, was the, that life was the light of men. It's all connected to Christmas. Now, let's get back to 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're trying to define love biblically. We're trying to understand what love has to do with Christmas, and here in verse 10, it says that Jesus was sent as an as a indication of the love of God to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's a word you probably used at least twice driving into church this morning, right? <laughs> Propitiation. What is propitiation? I mean, that that you talk about a ten dollar Bible word. That is not a word that we usually use. Okay, what is this propitiation? And, and let me just tell you, this is where today's message um, gets hard to swallow. So, so I'm just going to warn you now. Uh, I'm about to lead us into an uncomfortable discussion. I'm about to lead us into a relatively dark valley and you're not going to like what I have to say. And just as I always say, uh, if you don't like what I have to say, just ask yourself, does it come from the scripture? And if it comes from the scripture, don't send me emails. I don't need to hear about it because the word of God is truth, amen? Are you with me? Okay, so the word of God is truth and we're about to to wade into some deep waters here and you're not gonna love what the Scripture is gonna tell us about this as we try to think about what this propitiation is all about. But I promise you, if you bear with me, this is a happy Christmas message. We're gonna come out of the dark valley into a brighter place, so bear with me and don't give up. Let's start with the argument This passage. The argument God is making here is that you cannot define love by watching humans try to love. You're never gonna define love by watching humans try to love. Get this picture in your mind. Picture uh, a person, whoever that is in your life, picture a person that you really, 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 really love. Someone that you love with all of your heart. Someone that is so, so dear to you. Uh, it, it might be a friend. It, it might be a child. It might be a grandchild. Don't you love your grandchildren a little more than your children? I'm just saying. I, I'm not, not, I'm like my wife sometimes, I think. Maybe it's it's uh, you know um, a colleague or your spouse, but I want you to picture somebody who you absolutely, truly, truly love. Now ask yourself this: Have I ever hurt this person? Have I ever selfishly initiated conflict with this person? Have I ever put my own preferences above theirs? Have I ever eaten the last piece of pie before they got home? Right? See, see even the people we love the most, we love selfishly. Even the people we love the most, we love imperfectly. And and if we're creating conflict and we're being selfish and we're sometimes unkind and we put our own preferences above theirs, is that really love? I mean, we call it love because we don't have a more precise word for it. But it's something less than real biblical love. And that's why God is saying to us, listen, um, if you want to know love, you have to find it in God because God is love and it's not we don't see love in that we love God we see love because God loves us and we're going to talk about that a little more I I want you to think of using your sanctified imagination a little bit more I want you to think about and especially if you're single this will be great if you're if you're married this might depress you I don't know but if you're single this might be great Think if you found the perfect person, that perfect man, that perfect woman, the one that, you know, just absolutely perfect, one who is never gonna give you up, one who, who's committed to never letting you down. They would never run around and desert you. The the person that uh, would swear that they're never going to make you cry. They're never going to say goodbye. In fact, they promised that they would never even tell a lie and hurt you. Is that reality? No, that's a Rick Astley song. In fact, it's the only Rick Astley song I've ever heard, I think. That's a lie. That perfect person doesn't exist. That person who loves perfectly does not exist. You are never going to find Mr. Right. Sorry, ladies. You're never going to to find Miss Perfect. Because every one of us has the same problem when it comes to relationships with other human beings, and that is the person we're in a relationship with is a sinner. That's the problem. That's why marriage counseling exists. Because every one of us made the same stupid mistake. We married a sinner. And, and because of that, we are never, ever, ever, ever going to find perfect love in another human being. See, the best human love available is still tainted, it's still selfish, it's still sinful because the scripture tells us in in, uh, Romans chapter three that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not gonna find that sinless person. You're not gonna find that person who exemplifies the love that is found only in God perfectly. Now you might find some people who have good days A few good moments, from time to time, they make you thrilled, but they're always, always going to let you down. We don't know love by watching human beings try to love. We only know love when God manifests it to us. He is love. And we're never going to know love apart from him. People are sinners. That's why verse 10 says that in his love, God sent his only son to be our propitiation. What is propitiation? A propitiation means that uh, in Christ, God so made love visible that he appeased his own wrath in the person of Jesus. You see, we've got to think if we want to understand anything about this loving God of ours, we have to think about the wrath of God. We have to think about the anger of God. We have to think about the offense of God. And the truth of the matter is that we need propitiation because propitiation is basically if we just break it down into our common terms today, the propitiation is the one who soaks up the wrath of God for us. Jesus becomes our propitiation, the one who cleans up the mess the one who absorbs the wrath of God now that's why I said this is going to get tough because you don't want to hear about the wrath of God I don't want to hear about the wrath of God I don't want to think about the wrath of God but let's look again at verse 10 in this is love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins you see that God so loved, God made love so visible to us in that he sent his son to appease his own wrath. That's why I said this is gonna be kind of hard to swallow. This is kind of uncomfortable to think about, but this idea that some people have is that since God is love, there's no wrath in him. Since God is love, Hate must be the furthest thing from him. If God is the personification of love, love is the opposite of hate. God is love, therefore there is no hate in God. And if that's what you believe, then you haven't read your Bible carefully. It's a common misconception in our culture that this loving God of ours is incapable of wrath. Hate must be the furthest thing from the heart of a perfectly loving God But wrath is the necessary consequence of perfect love. Think about it. When you truly, truly, truly love someone or truly, truly, truly love something, you are capable of tremendous wrath. Just have someone attack your children and see what happens. See, that love and wrath actually go together. People say, well, the God that I worship would never send someone to hell. The God that I worship would never hate anything and would never hate anyone. The God that I worship is all about love and not about wrath, to which I simply say, then the God that you worship was made up in your own mind, and he is not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is so loving that wrath is a necessary component of his character, of his nature. If you believe in a God that has no wrath, you believe in a God that has no love. Because the God of the Bible is wrathful precisely because he's so loving. And the God of the Bible hates sins. And you're not going to like what I'm about to say. So I'm going to back it up with scripture. The God of the Bible hates sins. Everybody say amen. amen. And the God of the Bible hates sinners. What? What? Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms. Right in the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms, and go to the early part of Psalms, Psalm 5, we're going to start in. And I just want to read you these verses, and and I'm having you turn there because you're not going to believe that you're going to think I'm making this up. But here it is right in the scripture, Psalm 5, beginning in verse 4, here's what it says. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Okay, I can deal with that. No evil dwells with you. Yeah, I agree with that. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. It doesn't just say you hate iniquity, it says you hate those who do iniquity. Well, yeah, but what about love the sin, or hate the sin, love the sinner? It says he hates those who practice iniquity. Verse six you destroy those who speak falsehood, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. You don't need me to explain it. It's very clear. Turn to chapter 11 as we're reading through Psalms. And By the way, I had about 22 verses, passages, that make this point about God's hatred. And I'm just going to give you two for the sake of time. Chapter 11, verse 5 of Psalms. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Do you see that? He loves righteousness. And that is why he hates Sin. Your problem is not just that you have sin and God hates sin. Your problem is that because of your sin, you are separated from God who cannot dwell with iniquity, it says. Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is hard, right? I mean, I, I, I don't like to think about our God like this. I love to think about our God who is love and yet even the the key passage in chapter 4 of 1 John that talks about God being love talks about our need for propitiation because God is separated from sinners because of our sin. The love of God is real and therefore so is his wrath. And this reality of the love and the wrath of God is the dilemma. It's it's the great um, quantum problem of the universe is that God says, I am righteous, I cannot dwell with sin, and I love people, and they sin. What am I going to do? Forgive me, Lord, for pretending like he actually has to wonder about things. You get my point? I got this problem. The people I love the most... Must endure my wrath. What will God do? Christmas. That's what he does. See, um, someone had to take the wrath of God. Sin is costly. And only a human being can rightly take the wrath for human sin. And yet, Only God is righteous enough to be able to, if we can say, afford the cost of human sin. And so somehow, we have to have God become man. Christmas. This is the whole point. God's love is manifested to us in a stable in Bethlehem, in a manger, because we are broken and apart from God. And only God is righteous enough to pay that price. So God had to become a man. Why? Because he loves us. The wages of sin is death. God is eternal. He cannot die. Yet he's the only one who can afford to pay the price of death for our sins. And that's why as Athanasius, the church father said, God became man in order to borrow sin, in order to buy our pardon. Excuse me. In order to borrow death in order to buy our pardon. God's love is manifested in Jesus. And his love is on a different level from what we think of as human love. Now, earlier I asked you to think of a person you really, 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 really really love. And now I'm gonna swing the pendulum complete other side and ask you to picture a person, don't shout out any names. (laughs) A person that you really, 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 you guys are godly people. I'm sure you don't hate anybody, but let's just, let's just assume that there's somebody you really, really dislike immensely. Might be somebody who's hurt you badly. Probably more likely it's somebody who's hurt someone you love badly. I want you to get a picture in your mind of that person. Do you want to serve that person? Do you wanna lay down your life for that person? Do you want to suffer so they won't have to suffer? Do you want to die so that person can live? I don't. Do you see the difference between what we can muster as love And what God does, because you know what the scripture says? The scripture says that while we were his enemies, God sent Christ to die for us. Romans chapter five, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read this to you real quick. You can look it up later when you get home. Romans chapter five, beginning in verse six. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for nice people. He didn't die for goody goodies. He died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates or or reveals or manifests his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for us. He died for us. He didn't have to leave the throne of heaven for the womb of a peasant teenage girl in Israel. He did not endure the wrath of evil men and even the wrath of his own father on the cross because we are good, nice people. He did it because we're not. Because we're sinners in desperate need of propitiation. And that, my friends, is the definition of Christmas love. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. There's too much talk about this condemning spirit among Christians or this God who is so harsh that he just wants to condemn. Listen, God looked upon us and realized we're already condemned. Our sin condemns us. So he sent his only son not to judge the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Merry Christmas. That's what it's about. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So, how do we apply that? 1 John 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or as it says in verse 7, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You'll only know true love when you know Jesus. And if you want to find out more about that, if you want to hear more about how you could personally know Jesus, I would love to talk to you. So would 90% of the people in this room today. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to someone who you know has a personal relationship with God. Talk to your parents if you know that they love Jesus and you're still trying to figure this out. Talk to somebody who can help you. I would be thrilled to sit down with you and talk to you about what does it mean to actually know Jesus personally. You can do it in this moment. And for those of us who already know Jesus, Jesus, We're only going to live in that love when we learn to truly love one another. Christ's love manifested through us. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we want to say a very humble thank you it's not nearly enough to say thank you. It's not nearly enough to appreciate what you've done for us as we think about the meaning of this Christmas season. As we think about the darkness in which we found ourselves before the light of the world came. As we think about the brokenness and the, and the lostness that we found ourselves in apart from you. But you manifested your love when you sent your Son to become the payment for our sin. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.